Hello, it's Thursday the 25th of November. I'm Jim White, sitting in for the holidaying Andrew Pearce, who is currently lifting his own body weight down at his gym. And this is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming direct from the Daily Mail newsroom. Tomorrow is Black Friday. We'll be hearing from a small retailer who is organising a boycott of this bizarre American import. A new report has found that social mobility in Britain is worse than it was 40 years ago. What can universities do to arrest the decline? And we'll be joined by a doctor diagnosing an unexpected cure for inefficiency in the NHS, social media. First, though, the awful tragedy unfolding on the sea between Britain and France. Yesterday, a dinghy sank just off Calais and 27 people drowned. Sadly, such wretched accidents do not seem to deter the flow of migrants across the Channel at the moment. Two survivors of the sinking, an Iraqi and a Somalian, have told police that the dinghy was hit by a container ship puncturing its thin rubber hull. Five people have subsequently been arrested in connection with the 27 deaths. Boris Johnson, President Macron and their ministers are expected to hold more talks today as the Prime Minister insisted that British boots are needed on the ground in France to stop people smuggling gangs getting away with murder. Uh, Joining me to tell us what's going on is the Daily Mail's chief reporter, Sam Greenhill. Sam, can you tell us how this happened? Well, Jim, I mean, perhaps the question is more simply, how did this not happen before? Uh, We've got a situation where, from being extremely rare, we now have dozens of these dinghies cast off every day from the shores of northern France. And what we know of yesterday's tragedy, the details are still fairly scant. um, But at around lunchtime, they they set off from uh, somewhere near Dunkirk, and unfortunately didn't get very far into the English Channel, still with Calais visible on, uh, behind them, when something happened, and we, we've seen various uh, explanations so far. One is that they were struck by a, a, a ship. Of course, it's the, uh, one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Um, but we don't know. It could easily have been the case that uh, water just suddenly started coming on board this craft which was described as very frail by the French government and there's a photograph that's come out this morning of the remains of this dinghy and and it's actually a a stomach churning sight because it it looks extremely flimsy and unseaworthy and in fact one of the French ministers yesterday said it was no more seaworthy than a, a child's paddling pool that you might blow up in your back garden. If this is happening a lot at the moment, it seems to be boats are are coming constantly across the channel. How are people smugglers still able to operate? Surely they can be stopped at source, can't they? Well, it depends what you mean by source. I mean, these men, and I think they probably are all men, operate very much in the shadows. You won't catch them on the boats. What they do is they uh, take money, a lot of it, uh, from the desperate migrants. They organise an inflatable boat or what they uh, say counts as an inflatable boat, it's homemade half the time, they get an outboard engine, and then uh, a driver will take these people um, to the beach areas. Uh, But after that, they're very much on their own. It's not the people smugglers who are piloting these boats across the channel. It's migrants, and and so the, the people smugglers are able to operate because 
it's very hard to know exactly where they are. Uh, they may operate from very far away from the, the actual uh, sea. They could, they could operate in uh, different countries. I mean, there's a suggestion that this group may have started in either Belgium or Germany overnight and simply never been to any of these camps along the northern French coast, but, but been um, billeted somewhere in Germany, perhaps, and then driven in, in the dead of night across the border. Of course, there's no, there's no border checks in, in Europe to one of these rather desolate beaches. Um, and this particular um, boat, we think, went off from somewhere near Dunkirk. It, it, it's, it's a long coastline, and there's something like 80 miles, perhaps, of, of coastline to, to monitor. The French are claiming that they've got hundreds of gendarmes out trying to stop them uh, but it's 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 pretty difficult to to stop you know one or two uh, are getting through and i think dozens are getting through every day at the moment because so many are trying uh, you said it's a lucrative uh, business have you any idea how much these desperate migrants are paying to get on these terrible boats i've seen uh, several figures and um they're all big uh, I think £3,300 per person seems to be the, the rough going rate. So if you imagine that uh, a, you know, a single boat might have 30 or 40 people in it, uh, or, or even more sometimes, then the smugglers are, are raking in £100,000 or up to maybe £150,000 per boat. What, what, one of the things that's necessary is to get lots of police out there and I believe the Prime Minister has offered British uh, uh, forces to go over there um, there's kind of dispute between Britain and France at the highest level here how, how much do you think politics is dictating action? Well it's a very good question I, I think what's possibly dictating action most, and uh, I mean, obviously, all the uh, politicians on both sides of the channel have been very vocal about this uh, today. But obviously, what, what's really dictating this is the fact that um, this tragedy happened on French, uh, well, on France's side of the channel, um, and to an extent, there have been accusations that the French have, to, to, to some extent, turned a blind eye to these crossings. Um, why would they not want these people to get... It's a huge problem for the French, isn't it? They're all camped out on the, on the, in, around Calais and Dunkirk. So perhaps they've been turning a blind eye and letting them get across. But this has shocked France. I um, mean, at Calais last night, the emotions were of, of horror and fury, horror as you know, a, a grim parade of sodden corpses was returned to shore just, just hours after these men, women and and children uh, had set off for what I mean they fervently hope would be the final leg of their journey to a better life about how this could have happened and I think that this is a wake-up call for the French people and it will I think lead to some sort of action but what what they can do about it you know no one can particularly agree on I think Britain has offered to send a uh, boots on the ground, as it were, more people to back up the gendarmes. I mean, the French government are saying they had 580 gendarmes out yesterday, but it obviously wasn't enough. And even when they come across one of these dinghies, what are they supposed to do about it? We saw a scene yesterday where uh, a, a French police truck on the beach simply flashed its blue lights and did a quick circle of, of, of this group uh, carrying their dinghy to the shore. And then kind of drove off. That was it. I mean, what else could they do? There's, 
you know, 30, 30 of these migrants to police officers. They obviously didn't fancy trying to do anything, arresting anybody. And so these people can effectively just carry on. Will Britain send more money? Will Britain send people, perhaps police, to, to, to help the French? Perhaps, and I think that is being talked about. But you know, it's also rather humiliating for the French to have to accept uh, British boots on the ground. And so whether that really happens or not, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Sam, thanks for bringing us up to speed on a really terrible story. Sam Greenhill there, the Daily Mail's chief reporter. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. And remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Tomorrow, independent retailers across the country will shut down their websites, donate their profits to charity and plant trees as part of a renewed drive against the rabid consumerism encouraged by large online sellers offering deals for Black Friday. The number of retailers boycotting the event is the highest figure ever recorded by the British Independent Retailers Association and comes as part of a growing movement against online shopping websites such as Amazon that has gained traction since the start of the pandemic. To explain the background to all this, I'm delighted to be joined by Zoe Roberts, founder of an independent retailer called Out of the Box Gifts. Uh, Zoe, just just fill us in. What what is the issue with Black Friday? Um, so I think there are a couple of issues really. First of all, it promotes over consumerism. So it, I think it encourages us to buy things that we don't need, um, and then increases waste. But also, independent retailers can't compete with the prices that the giants, with the discounts that the giants can offer. So we keep our prices fair all, all year round. So to discount heavily just before Christmas really isn't feasible for small businesses. I don't even understand what Black Friday is. I mean, it's some sort of uh, institution that's been sort of pointlessly uh, uh, brought in from, from the United States. When did it start in this country? Yeah, I'm not sure it's been getting more and more popular over the years, hasn't it? So probably about 15, 15 years ago, it started becoming popular over here. But yeah, like you say, it's from a from a holiday that's, that's not really from this country either. So it just seemed a bit pointless. Uh, this is the largest number of um, independent retailers boycotting Black Friday. Uh, why now? How have you managed to get it much more prominent than it has been in the past? So I think as well, um, anti-Black Friday has been sort of um, increasing year on year. So last year, um, there was definitely a, a large number of independent retailers who who chose to avoid it or do something uh, do something else um, that weekend instead. So yeah, again, year on year, it's been increasing. And this year, it just, just seems to be much bigger. And you've made it a very positive thing, haven't you? It's it, You're trying to make the environmental uh, uh, issue prominent here planting trees and so on how many do you expect to plant over over the course of the day do you reckon yeah so last year we planted trees for black black friday weekend we planted a tree for every order and we planted 300 um this year we're giving we plant trees for every order now anyway so uh this year we are giving 10 percent of our black friday weekend sales to um our local food hub as a consumer Obviously, these bargains that come with Black Friday are quite tempting. But should we be joining the boycott as well? Are you encouraging us not to get involved with Black Friday as well as the independent retail sector? 
Um, not necessarily. I think I think I'd encourage you just to think twice before you buy something. Um, just think, do you really need it? Um, is there something else in your home that you could use instead? Um, you know, try and reduce, reuse, and recycle before buying new. Oh well, thanks, Zoe. Uh, that was Zoe Roberts there, the founder of Out of the Box Gifts. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at MailPlus, or you can get hold of Andrew on at Tory Boy Pierce. It seems in one area of life, today's young people certainly have it worse than their parents' generation. Social mobility hasn't entirely disappeared, but for those born since the early 80s, it's becoming increasingly hard to move up the ladder. Research suggests that these days only 16% of men with the double handicaps of low qualifications and socially disadvantaged backgrounds become professionals. Yet, of a similarly poorly qualified cohort of men from the most advantaged homes, nearly half stay in the managerial and professional classes. It seems where you come from is still the most important determinant of where you will end up. So what can our schools and universities do to give everyone a proper chance? I'm delighted to be joined by Laura van der Erve, Senior Research Economist at the IFS. Laura, what are the main problems that universities have uh, to address uh, the issues that are currently depressing social mobility? So there's kind of two parts to kind of the role of universities and social mobility. So firstly, it's obviously like, do kids from poor families actually manage to make it to university? And the second is, if they enter that university, do they do well? Um, so we say in our research, actually these things aren't always related. So for example, if you look at the very selective, very prestigious universities, such as like Bristol, Oxford, Cambridge, if kids from poor families enter those universities, they do incredibly well. So around 60% of them are going to become top earners. But just very, very few kids actually enter those universities in the first place. If you then look at um, some of the less selective universities, a lot more kids from poor families actually go to those universities. Um, so actually, they do a lot more to promote social mobility than the very elite universities. So, so if we're looking back, when was there a golden time of social mobility? I mean, has it ever existed? Well, so that is not specifically something we've looked at here. So here we really look at like one cohort. So this is kids who are now kind of in their early 30s. And we look at what has been their experience going to university or not. And now um, what their earnings are. So if it's not just university, then what? other factors are at play if you're saying obviously you're saying they've got much more chance if they do go to university but not all of them it works for once they get there so so what else is going on so i think that, yeah i think there's two things there firstly like just not that many of them make it to university so for example if we look at uh, children on preschool meals only around 16 percent of them um, go to university well if you look for example at kids who've been to private schools around three quarters of them will go to university. So part of that is going to be driven by attainment at school kind of earlier on. So obviously, if they don't get the grades to go to university, it becomes a lot harder. Uh, So one thing universities can do to help with that part of things is, for example, um, contextualized grades. So this is something where um, kids from poorer backgrounds get uh, lower entry requirements to enter university. 
which is one way of kind of helping those kids come into university in the first place. And are universities becoming more receptive to doing that sort of thing? Yeah, so I think increasingly universities are doing what we call these kind of contextualised offers. But when we look, um, for example, in our research, we look at what has been the progress between kids who are kind of now are in their early 30s and those currently at university. And we see that actually despite all this money being spent on that access, um, the progress has been pretty slow. Uh, so there's still a lot of work uh, to be done. One of the big changes, of course, since, uh, well, certainly my time, but even, you know, the, the people who are now in their 40s compared to now is fees, charging. Yeah. Does that make a yeah. difference? Um, again, not something we've kind of been able to look at in this research, just because we only have data for people um, kind of later on. But um, when we do look at kind of the cohorts that were charged um, a lower amount than the £9,000 currently being charged to, and then compare that to current cohorts who are uh, having to pay those £9,000, we don't actually see like a massive drop in um, access for kids from full backgrounds. You actually see slight increases. Uh, Laura, thank you so much. Can I just ask you one thing uh, uh, about yeah. it? Um, would, would society be a better place if everybody got access, proper access to university? Is, is that the way forward? I, I think access here is exactly the right word. Like everyone should have access, should have opportunity to go to university, but that doesn't mean I think university is necessarily the best path for everyone. Yes, interesting. But the opportunity needs to be properly open. And at the moment, you, you just don't think it is. Exactly. Laura van der Erf, Senior Research Economist at the IFS. Thank you so much for joining us. Joining me now for our regular rundown of the financial news is Ruth Sunderland, business editor of the Daily Mail. Ruth, the LV insurance sale, it's been going on since uh, since December 2020. Where are we now with it? Yes, Jim, you're right. This has been going on for quite some time. So LV, uh, which is one of Britain's biggest remaining mutual insurers, is trying to sell itself um, to Bain Capital, which is a U.S private equity business and uh, they've got to get the approval of their membership in a vote and that vote is coming up early next week so they've got to get a majority of their members to support it and it would be fair to say they're having a bit of trouble with that because they've only offered members £100 each for selling out their rights their membership rights and members actually own LV at the moment so it's not a lot of money compared with what, what's been on offer at other mutual insurers when they've shed their mutual status. So there's been a lot of protest about it. It's been a very um, contested and, and, and quite bitter debate about this whole proposed transaction and a bit of a suspicion that the existing management are motivated by the possibility of well-rewarded jobs under Bain management and, and that they're going to perhaps get more out of it than the members will. Also, what's come out this morning is that um, LV members are actually paying a combined £43 million to a bunch of city advisors. So it seems like everybody's really cashing in on this, apart from the members themselves. £43 million in fees to city advisors. Yeah. That's extraordinary. The whole system seems to be encouraging this sort of pillage of our national business infrastructure, doesn't it? I think there's a lot of truth in what you say, actually, that, that there, there's an awful lot of money to be made in terms of fees um, and incentives from this. 
a lot of the whenever you get takeover deals and you know whether it's private equity or whether it whether it's another form of just another public company one important thing that people don't necessarily realize is the management of the target company often have a really big incentive to sell out rather than defend their business because if they sell out they will cash in personally whether that's by share options maturing or whether they've been offered an equity stake in the business going forward so it's not a level playing field and i think you know you'd only be human if you put your own interests first rather than thinking about the broader interest of your members or your customers or your employees so you know i i I have to say i absolutely agree with you about that jim apart from the fact that it will obviously benefit their personal um uh, current accounts what benefit Hmm. would it get to the company will it be a better stronger uh, more useful uh, more consumer friendly company if it's sold to bain the bosses argue that it would um now lv does not they say have enough capital to carry on as an independent business itself and that it they they argue that it needs to invest a lot in it um, and that would it would be unfair to us the members to fund that investment now, of course, there are other options. It's not simply a choice between stay independent and sell yourself to U.S. private equity. There's another option that has been on the table, which is that they, they could do a deal and merge with Royal London, which is another mutual insurer. Um, and that would be a solution that would offer members the continued um, benefits of being part of a mutual. Um, it's not completely clear whether they, whether LV members would have, would, would themselves have mutual membership if they did a deal with Royal London, but they would be part of a mutual group um, with mutual values and a long-term perspective. Because a lot of the problem with private equity is they have very short-term horizons. So if LV sold to Bain, it's perfectly possible that two or three years down the line, there'll be another sale and there's just more instability ahead for people who've got, you know, 20 or 30 year savings products. Um, you know, it's not, not really what you want. <laughs> if the uh, current members don't feel that this is a good deal mm. for them, have they got enough power to stop it? I mean, can there be a vote against this and will it stop it? Yes. So the, the situation at the moment is that under LV's Articles of Association, 50% of the members have to vote in order to um, pass that, and, and um, 75% of those have to vote in favour. Now, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get rid of the requirement for a 50% turnout, because most of the turnouts on votes are much, much lower than, than 50%. I think, you know, more in the region of 6 to 8%. So members absolutely can um, vote the deal down. And my one piece of advice to anyone listening to this who is a member of LV is, you know, I'm not here to tell you what to think. You can make up your own mind about the deal, but do get out there and vote. There are lots of private equity deals where, you know, you have absolutely no say. Your voice cannot be heard. In this one, you do have a voice, and I would just advise anybody to use that voice to make your views known get out and cast your vote great advice thanks so much ruth sunderland the business editor of the daily mail 
Wonder Medical have undertaken a piece of research in the last month uh, with over 1,100 medical professions in the UK around the use of social media in a clinical setting. The research has highlighted the growing concern among medical professionals in the United Kingdom about the widespread usage of platforms like WhatsApp for medical conversations and interactions in a clinical setting. Joining me to tell us why this could be a problematic development in the way professionals interact with patients is Dr. Justin Davis, CEO at Wonder Medical, who conducted the research. Uh, Dr. Davis, were you surprised at how much this influences and uh, how much use there is of it in in modern medicine? No, no, I wasn't at all surprised. I mean, data is is key in in healthcare nowadays. Um, Previously, used to discuss cases with colleagues in a corridor or at a a meeting. But now we have a lot more digital data. It's uh, shared between uh, staff, really with the patient's best interest at heart. You want to make sure that you're making the right decision uh, in an expedient manner. And the opportunities for, for sharing data mean that you can really help to improve patient care. I think what we have seen is uh, with the advent of COVID, whereby you know we were as a healthcare system trying to cope with a massive influx of patients, um, saturated wards. It was difficult uh, to you know communicate in normal ways. Uh, clinics were stopped and cancelled, and as a result, the the barriers were lowered a little bit to enable uh, data exchange of, of patient information and conversations uh, other than what what would normally be the case. But I think actually probably this provides a wonderful opportunity going forwards for us um, as a way of kind of modernizing communications to really aid and benefit uh, patients really uh, by ensuring that they have um, the, the right people making decisions in, at an expedited time uh, to ensure that the quality of healthcare is, is, continues to improve. So it is of communication has obviously been upped by social media. You say it's all yeah. about data, and that's absolutely right. So how should social media be used to ensure yeah. that it's done properly? That's a great question. Well, I think, you know, for all of us, we're used to using these tools uh, in the consumer world. And I think they're really our consumer tools that we use, like Facebook and WhatsApp and, and, uh, and Twitter, for instance. But I think there are a few questions which come from those. One is a question, obviously, around trust. And you see this all over the media with regards to can we actually trust these uh, these platforms to be kind of real you know guardians of our data and the answer to that clearly is no. When it comes to medicine, none of these platforms are designed specifically for medicine, so they're, they're cumbersome to use uh, and they don't often have all the features that we would require as, as healthcare professionals or the wider medical community. And over and above that, there are issues of compliance. So you know we're held as is all the hospital systems really around the world. Uh, by compliance regulation standards which go well above what would be expected in the consumer world. And, you know, we have to make sure that those are respected. It it enables us essentially to have more digital data, uh, but at at the price of ensuring that the patient's welfare and information is, is safeguarded as much as possible. Patient privacy, I hope my doctor isn't discussing around the dinner table my problems. Do you fear that there is a problem with social media about privacy as much as anything? No, I think most most of my colleagues are very respectful in terms of so they they, they usually discuss about a case rather than about a patient. Uh, but I actually think there's a wonderful opportunity there to actually move it from from a case to a patient and actually expedite you know care in a completely you know revolutionised way. And I think this would be much more efficient. 
uh, it allows expertise to cascade down from the hospital into the GP clinic. And indeed, I can share with you examples of during the middle of the COVID crisis, whereby, you know, we had uh, consultant ITU physicians from Italy sharing cases with, with audience in the UK and the US about patients who are in intensive care who thought they were doing very well, young patients who then were taken out of intensive care and dropped dead. No one could explain this. They started to figure it out and it was due to blood clots and, and they very quickly realized we needed to give people more blood thinning medications who were very, very sick with COVID. And this cascaded rapidly down through the world and meant that as a result in the UK when COVID came to us and in the US, there were far less deaths maybe than they could have been otherwise. So the, the pros here far outweigh the cons but we need to make sure we do it in the right way uh, and in a way which kind of, uh, is respectful for, for both doctors because actually they're really exposed and uh, having to make these decisions and also, of course, to patients as well. Is there any sign of a sort of um, medical platform being invented? Uh, is there a WhatsApp for docs out there? Well, I mean, that, that's exactly what we're doing at, at Wonder, actually. So, so Wonder is a, a UK-based uh, startup. Uh, growing very rapidly because it's, it's growing into a need state which is you know, built by doctors for the medical community at large uh, and aiming really to provide a, the leading medical communications tool to connect the wider medical community around the world. So yeah, absolutely, this, this need has been recognised uh, and I think that uh, you know, it, it, it aims to improve communications but also to help uh, doctors access a huge amount of data. We're not all, uh, only talking about patient data, we're talking about educational data, guideline data, uh, reference documents and so on and so forth in a way where they're not swamped. So it's, it's really you know, being very pinpointed and precise and uh, enabling to, them to function in this world, new world we live in with, with, and actually take advantage of technology rather than be swamped by it. I take your point about the technology enabling the sharing of information amongst doctors. One of the issues we've had, though, with the National Health Service latterly has been an inability to get communication direct between the patient and the medical service. You can't get an appointment with your GP, for instance. Do you foresee social media helping that backlog, getting rid of that backlog? Well, I think it may well. Uh, And so I think I'd say rather than social media... I'd say dedicated communication streams and communication devices. Remember, we have the most powerful computers basically which ever existed in our pockets, you know, the, the, the smartphones that we all carry. And there are already a number of services out there in the UK and the US commercial services which essentially provide a link between uh, patients uh, and doctors as well. So I think, you know, going forward, there are going to be a whole series of, you know, greater efficiencies in healthcare which enable... Uh, you know, communications between doctor and patients when it's appropriate to happen uh, on devices uh, or on, you know, on, on online web connections as well. Uh, and of course, at other times it won't be appropriate and they'll need to be seen face to face. But I think we need to take on this challenge and embrace the, the opportunity through technology because I think it will lead to a much more efficient healthcare environment, ultimately, you know, better pe- care for our patients. That's great. So thank you very much indeed, Dr. Justin Davis, the CEO at Wonder Medical. That's all we have time for for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. I'm Jim White, standing in for Andrew Pearce, and I'll be back tomorrow. So until then, have a great evening. Listener.